The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because three times he'd asked him, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he said, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your arms and another will dress you and take you where you do not wish to go. And he said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's pray. Father, we believe that you inspired John to record these words. We believe they had power in John's day, and so we pray, come Holy Spirit, open this word to us now that it would have power in our lives to transform and mold and shape us more to be like Christ. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. <clears throat> Is there hope for prideful people? Is there hope for prideful people? I was in private confession a number of years ago. Uh, it was my first time as an Anglican going for private confession. We actually do do that in the Anglican Church. You can at any time call the office and ask for a priest to sit with you and hear your confession. And of course, it is God alone that forgives our sins. And yet there is something about having a real person, flesh and blood across from you, hear you say it all, and then in the name of the church, declare your sins forgiven. And so here we were, a bunch of clergy at a retreat, and I sat down privately with my bishop, and I laid out my long list of sins in private confession. And at the end of it, he, he said, well, there's a, there's a root to all of these sins you've laid out. And I said, oh? And he said, it's pride. I said, wow, that's right. And, and so I walked away absolved and, and, and just mulling over this whole pride thing. Well, a few days later, on this retreat, a bunch of the clergy, we started comparing our experiences in the confessional. Not quite comparing our lists of sins, but comparing our experiences. And, and, and I said, well, you know what he said at the end of mine? The bishop, brilliant. I mean, he says it's all about Paul pride. And then the next person said, well, you know, that's what he said at the end of mine. He said, all my sin was about pride. And then the next one said pride and pride and pride. And we sort of in horror for a moment that we're the most prideful group of priests ever. But of course, the reason is that the bishop recognized that at the root of every sin, we find pride. That's the sin we encountered in the Garden of Eden when we first rebelled against God. It's pride that leads to a whole host of other sins. There's many forms of pride. Uh, it's insidious. It's everywhere. Uh, it's cloaked. It's easily masked. I was just coming up with a list the other day. Um, maybe this is more my list than your list, but here's some different ways that pride can try to mask itself. There's charity pride. 
No, that's the pride that says, no, 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 no. I don't need any charity. I don't need any help from you. I got this. I'm fine, right? Charity pride. There's um, vindication pride. You know, I'll show them. Right, I'll show them. They'll see, and they'll weep one day when they see. That's kind of pride. There's a perfectionist pride. I don't know anything about that one. Um, there's, there's the blame pride, right? The pride that likes to blame. It's always someone else's fault. There's the haughty kind of pride that elevates yourself above others, you know, likes to categorize people, right? They can fit within our little structures. And then there's the entitlement pride, right? That everything I have, well, you know, at the end of the day, I'm entitled to what I have, right? I'm entitled to a good life. I'm entitled to your good opinion. I'm entitled to these things. And, and you know, there's hockey pride. Um, that's, that's easy to fall into when you're cheering for the Ottawa Senators. Sorry, Pittsburgh Penguin fans. There ain't no pride there for you. Oh, see what I just did there? Look at that. See, I just fell right into that trap. Um, the reality is we live in a society that is all about building people up. And that's good to one degree. But what's interesting is 100 years ago, if you went back and looked at some of the literature, the biggest concern, the, the, the way they'd, uh, people would say, here's the real problem with society, they'd say hubris is the problem. 100 years ago, they would have said, you know, the problem is people who are puffed up, people who are vain, people who are prideful. And so the literature 100 years ago was all about sort of bringing people down a few notches. The problem people would identify today is say the problem in the world is people don't feel good enough about themselves, right? They're beaten down and they're broken down, and so we need to prop them up. And the concern, though, is as a result, we can overdo that. I mean, you go to Barnes & Nobles and look in the the self-help section, and I haven't yet found a book that says, you know, dealing with your pride. I see it all about, you know, your best life now, and, you know, it's all about you, and you go girl, you go boy. We see that all the time. But we don't regularly see something that says pride is the problem. Maybe you're the problem. But it's true. James chapter 4 has some pretty harsh words about pride. You know, God doesn't mince his words. James 4 verse 6, God opposes the proud. Just let that sit for a minute. God opposes the proud. One of my favorite books in the Chronicles of Narnia, most of you know I'm uh, a fan. I've got, uh, um, well, I found out last week that I, the word decal is not a word you use down here. I need to learn to speak like a Texan. I have decals on the back of my car. Decals. It's a decal, but I'll, I'll, I'll translate. It's a, and I've got Narnia. I got a little Narnia decal on the back of my car. Um, and don't ask me how I pronounce pecan, but the, um, <laughs> one of my favorite quotes, one of my favorite books in the Narnia series is The Horse and His Boy. And what I love about it is it's really an examination of pride, pride from all kinds of different angles. And there's this moment at the end of The Horse and His Boy in, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia where Rabidash, this prince, has been waging a war and he loses and he's captured and he's about to be released by the kings that have conquered him. And it's, 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 an, it's a mercy, but he doesn't want to be released. He says, just kill me. I don't want your mercy. And Aslan, the, the lion, the Jesus figure, shows up in that moment. And he speaks these words. And they always cut through my heart when I hear them. Aslan says this. He says, Rabidash, take heed. 
Your doom is very near. But you may still avoid it. Forget your pride. What have you to be proud of? And your anger. Who has done you wrong? And accept the mercy of these good kings. Now, not to ruin the story for you, but Rabadash does not repent, does not forget his pride, and Aslan turns him into a donkey, and for the rest of his life, he's known as Rabadash the Ridiculous. And I like that imagery because it, it shows us a picture of the ultimate end of someone who does not get over their pride. Ridiculous. Is there any hope for prideful people? Is there gospel, good news for prideful people? Well, in today's text, with Peter and Jesus there on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, this is a moment of good news for prideful people. Jesus is dealing with Peter's pride. And as he deals with Peter's pride, if we listen in, he'll also deal with our pride. There's good news here. What Jesus does with Peter's pride is three things. He confronts Peter's pride. He confronts it. Then he cleanses Peter's pride. And then finally, he converts Peter's pride. He confronts Peter's pride, he cleanses it, and then he converts it. First, he confronts it. And oh, Peter and all of us prideful people need God to confront us in our pride. You see, Peter, you thought so much of yourself, didn't you? How the mighty have fallen in these last few days, Peter. It begins, we see his failure all through this. And in his failure, we see his pride coming to a crashing end. Verse 9, I didn't read that, but from last week's text, verse 9 says that when Peter first arrives on the shore there, chapter 21, verse 9, it says that he sees a charcoal fire. And of course, the phrase charcoal fire is identical wording to John chapter 18, where Peter was warming himself by a charcoal fire as Jesus was being tried and where Peter was three times denying that he even knew Jesus. This charcoal fire. Imagine what was in Peter's mind when he stepped off that boat and saw a charcoal fire. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Three times I denied him before a charcoal fire. But also, in verses 15, 16, and 17, when Jesus asks those three questions, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? Look at the way he addresses Peter. He calls him Simon, son of John. It's his birth name, it's his full name, Simon, the son of John. And you gotta ask, why is Jesus using Peter's birth name, his full name? Is it, maybe it's kinda like in my household growing up where if there's a rebuke that's gonna come, your whole name is going to come in front of it. Whenever I would hear the words, Paul, Eric, Donison, through the house, I knew that they'd caught me. <laughs> Maybe Jesus is doing that here. He's, he's about to rebuke Peter. Simon, son of John. But I see, I think there's much more going on here than using the full name. Notice what name Jesus doesn't use of him. He doesn't call him Peter. See, his birth name was Simon, but Jesus gave him the name Peter. Remember back in Matthew 16, where Jesus says to to, to Simon, he says, Simon, you are Peter, which means the rock. 
And on this rock will I build my church. You are the steadfast one. You're the steady one. You're the rock. You're going to last. You're going to make it. You are Peter. And what does he say here in this moment? Simon. Because Peter knows that he hasn't acted very much like Peter in the last few days. He's not been a rock at all. Simon, son of John. See how Jesus is confronting him with his failure, confronting him ultimately with his pride, which we see most evidence in verse 15 where he says, Jesus says to him, you know, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? But the first time in verse 15, he says it slightly differently. He says, do you love me more than these? More than who? More than these. I mean, what Jesus is asking, Peter is saying, do you love me more than all the other disciples? Why would Jesus ask him that? Do you love me more than these? Why would Jesus ask Peter this? Because that's exactly what Peter said of himself. Back in John 13 and in Matthew 26, Peter says to Jesus, though everyone else falls away, everyone else falls away, I will never fall away. What is he saying in that moment? He's saying, you know, Jesus, there's disciples and then there's me. And really, his pride is right at the center of this. Peter's pride is that he believed that he loved Jesus more than anybody else. See how that pride is just twisted? I mean, you think love is a good thing, but Peter had turned it into a competition. Peter had elevated himself over everyone else. Do you truly love me, Peter, more than these? Because these last few days, it sure hasn't looked like you love me more than these. You see, Jesus is confronting Peter's pride out of mercy. It's a severe mercy, but it's a mercy nonetheless. When God comes and confronts us with our pride, it is a mercy because it is a deep rot within us that needs to be dealt with. And if it's not confronted, it will just spread more and more. See, pride is like a gateway sin. It leads to other sins. You start with pride and very quickly it morphs into something else and something else and something else. I saw this so much on display yesterday. We spent Saturday moving bedrooms. We realized yesterday that after a year living here that we'd got the bedroom set up wrong with our four daughters. And so we sat down and had some thorough negotiations about whose bedroom's going to go where. And then we started moving beds and furniture and everything. And it sounded like a really good idea at 10 in the morning. By 3 o'clock in the afternoon, not so good an idea. Especially as I was, you know, getting ready to go out the door to chapel. Well, in my household, being the only male next to the dog, uh, I have this need to be the one that does all the heavy lifting, you know, literally heavy lifting, carrying stuff, right? No, no, I don't need any help. Seriously, back away, I don't need any help. Um, I also need to assemble everything, right? Because, you know, that's the male thing to do. How ridiculous is this? But I do it. I, no, 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 really, really, I got this. I got, no, D did you hear me the first time say, I got this? Well, by the end of the day, we're rebuilding some Ikea furniture in the process, so you know where my stress level is by three o'clock. I realized by about three o'clock, the whole family has now like moved away from me. 
No one is around me. Everyone's left. They're all doing something in other corners of the house. Because my pride had quickly turned into frustration and anger, and I found myself by three o'clock going to each family member saying, I'm sorry for my anger. I'm sorry for my frustration. I'm sorry for my outbursts. I'm apologizing. And gracious family, they forgive in Jesus, but my wife did ask me as I was walking out the door a moment later, and what are you preaching on in chapel? And I said, pride. (laughs) The Lord loves to give these object lessons for us um, as we prepare to preach. Jesus, though, confronts us in our pride, and it's a humbling thing. It's an embarrassing thing, and yet it needs to happen. It's a mercy, a severe mercy, but we need our pride confronted because it's rotting us. But not only does he confront us, but then he cleanses us. He cleanses Peter. Again, in verses 15, 16, and 17, that do you love me, do you love me, do you love me moment, really what he's doing is replaying for Peter, that other charcoal fire. He's giving Peter a second chance. He's saying, let's, let's do this over again. You had an epic failure when you were asked if you even knew me. Let me try this again. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I mean, Peter's got to understand what Jesus is doing here. And what he's doing is he's reinstating him. He's giving him a second chance. He's forgiving him. He's giving him a new, fresh start. And what I love about that is it, it, it really works. He has been reestablished. He has been forgiven. Because notice in the rest of the text following, he's referred to again as Peter. Peter's back. I mean, that's what Jesus does. Isn't it amazing? Even prideful, broken people who have really hurt people, we have Jesus confront us, we confess our sins, and he truly forgives. He takes it away and puts us back in that place of forgiveness and new life. As we come to the rail today, maybe, I don't know about you, the the thing I need to lay down most, most Sundays at the rail of communion is to lay down my pride. Oh Lord, confront my pride and then call me to the table that I can have you cleanse me of it, that you can heal me and assure me of my forgiveness, of my pride. Remember that he's speaking to the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. That's the one who's speaking this, the one who through what happened on the cross, bearing his sins, bearing his pride, through the empty tomb, rising from the dead, has taken the consequence of our sin. This is the one speaking to Peter, and this is the one we meet as we come to this table, saying, bring your pride, just bring it. I confronted you with it, now bring it. Let me cleanse you. And he does. But thankfully, he doesn't just confront us and doesn't just cleanse us. Finally, Jesus converts Peter's pride. He converts it. What I mean by that is he takes Peter's prideful heart and says, I'm going to do some work on this and change it. I'm going to convert your heart. I'm going to take all that energy you've been pouring into yourself and your own prideful ambition, and I'm going to convert that into a different kind of way of living. Verses 15, 16, and 17, again, every time Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Feed, tend, sheep, lambs. I mean, you listen to that and realize that Jesus is giving him work to do. There's work to do. And the work that's being given is a new vision. Peter, I'm going to take your broken heart. I'm going to give you a new set of activities in your life. Your job is to feed and to shepherd. That's what tend means in verse 16. Feed and to shepherd. And isn't it amazing 
the fact that he calls Peter to feed and to shepherd, shepherd, well, isn't that Jesus' job? I mean, John 10 says he is the good shepherd, so why is he giving shepherding responsibilities to Peter? Because Jesus wants Peter to live his own life. Peter, I'm the good shepherd, and I want you to live my life. I want you to live my life. I want you to have a Christ-like life. Not, you're not just going to come to me as your Lord and Savior, but you're actually going to come to me and say, I want to live that life. And Peter, I'm going to convert your broken heart. I'm going to take that heart, and I'm going to make it move from pride to more Christ-likeness. And here's how we're going to do that. I'm going to get you feeding and tending the sheep. Feeding and tending the sheep. See, what he's doing is he's given, Jesus is giving him a new vision. I don't know about you, but I can hear the, 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 the story of forgiveness again and again. And if there's not a sort of a next step beyond forgiveness, I'm just going to keep going back into the same pattern, you know, falling into pride, coming back, getting forgiven, fall back into pride, come back and get forgiven. There's got to be a cure. And the cure is this calling, this vision. There's a different way to live. And Jesus is calling forgiven people to live differently. When I was in Ottawa, we were downtown, really close to the parliament buildings. And so we had a lot of very young, very well-educated, very powerful young people who were serving in the nation's legislature. And they would come to our church and I would have my door open, you know, throughout the week. Young men came in, young men came in, young men came in. And you know, almost every one of those young men came to my office was coming to deal with pornography. I know that's not a shock. I hope it's not a shock. But it, it, talk about a pandemic. Talk about where pride can lead you. But pornography was the besetting sin, it seemed, in that city, in that culture. And we would talk about their forgiveness at the cross. But you know what really made a difference in their lives? It was not just hearing forgiveness. So they'd fall back into sin and then get forgiven and fall back into sin. But rather to say, you're forgiven and now here's a higher vision that Jesus is giving you. Do, you. do you realize what Jesus is calling to you? That He is putting a vision in front of you. He's giving you a life to live. Will you aspire to that life? And I would hear reports of these young men coming back to me again and again saying, thanks for the forgiveness. I've heard that in every church I've gone to. But finally someone gave me something to live differently for. Finally, I had a vision, I had a goal. They still said they fell down. But again, they were feeling that encouragement. There is a higher calling. Show me what I'm to live like. And Jesus is saying to Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, live my life. And you're not only forgiven, Peter, but you're called to be converted to a different kind of living. I love that Peter, Jesus begins with lambs. He says, feed my sheep, but he also said, feed my lambs. And lambs, in verse 15, it's the little sheep, a sheep that's less than a year old. And I like that he starts there because as Jesus is going to convert our hearts, part of what he needs to do is get us looking at how do we serve the little ones, the littlest ones, right? The least of these. On Mother's Day, it's not hard to point to motherhood. And we all come from different mothers, different backgrounds. But when we look at the call of motherhood, we recognize that it's a call literally to serve the little ones. I mean, I know as a dad, you know, we, we pour out ourselves, we want to serve, but, you know, our mothers, they actually physically pour out their own bodies for their children. I mean, there's a, there's a call to serve. There's a call to do everything for this little one. 
And there's something that changes our hearts in that work, in that motherhood. You know, it's amazing. Um, there's something called the Mother's Union in the world. It was started 140 years ago in England, and it has moved especially into Africa, and it has just grown. There's four million members of the Mother's Union in 83 countries, um, and it's, it's most growing in Africa. We got some members of the Mother's Union here today, I know, that were actually coming and they were, they were going to come and they were going to wave your hand if you're part of Mother's Union. I'm thinking Nigeria, different parts of Africa. The Mother's Union, what is amazing about the Mother's Union is that work to serve their, their communities. That work of these mothers and grandmothers and aunts and others coming alongside to serve the little ones. And they pour themselves out for their communities to serve. And uh, I saw this most, most amazingly when I was in Ethiopia about a year and a half ago. And when I was in Ethiopia, um, Bishop Grant Lamarckand is, is the bishop of Ethiopia, but his wife, Mama Wendy, who's a doctor, a pediatrician, she would work with the Mother's Union to get them trained in hygiene, nutritional health, um, maternal health. And so as she would do that training for the Mother's Union, those Mother Union's members would then go out into their communities and give education to all the different mothers and all the little ones in their communities. And the effect that these mothers, as they went out caring for the little ones, was unbelievable. Just an example, in Gambella, which is uh, the city where, where Bishop Grant and Mama Wendy live, in that parish, in that village parish, um, typically in Ethiopia, there's not, women will have 9 to 11 pregnancies in a year and only two to four of those children will live to the age of five. In the parish of Gambella, the parish church alone, their average number of child funerals per year was 50 per year. Imagine being that priest. Imagine being those mothers. After the mother's union got this training and started spreading this training home to home, caring for the little ones, the next year, they had zero child funerals in that parish. The year after, they had two, and the year after that, they had one. And so that means over three years, over three-year period, where statistically there would have been 150 child funerals, there were three, because these mothers went out to feed the little lambs. They went out to care for the little ones. The impact we can make in this world as we seek to listen to Jesus' call to Christ-likeness is profound. And don't tell me it won't deal with your pride. As you seek to serve the little ones, your pride is converted and transformed. Is there hope for prideful people? I'm going to close by reading from Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus gives us this picture of what his life looks like. Jesus who comes and confronts us with our pride. Jesus who also cleanses us of our pride, but finally that he converts our pride. He gives us a new vision of Christ-likeness. Paul writes this, he says, have this mind among you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being found in the form of a servant, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is there hope for prideful people? There is. And here is where it's found. When I survey the wondrous cross where the young prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Jesus said to Peter, follow me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.